The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. In every area of human endeavor, one name stands out. Hippocrates, Shakespeare, Beethoven, and that name is forever synonymous with a profession or or a craft, you've got Florence Nightingale, Babe Ruth, Albert Einstein, these extraordinary people influenced not just their sphere, but the world as a whole. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Muhammad Ali, Gloria Steinem, and in the field of plant-based nutrition, destined to become human nutrition without qualification, there is Dr. T. Colin Campbell, my very very special guest on today's program. Welcome, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan broadcast and podcast, wishing you a merry December. We actually had some snow here today in New York City, which makes me even more ready to start decking the halls and celebrate the final month of a year I'm sure we have all had enough of with some very special programming this month. So last week, we had Ingrid Newkirk from PETA. Next week, there'll be a holiday party with Jasmine Singer and Colleen Holland from Veg News and some surprise fabulous vegans popping in for our final episode of 2020. And in keeping with the theme of extra excellence today... Dr. T. Colin Campbell himself, a noted nutritional biochemist, professional professor emeritus at Cornell University, a lead researcher in the largest epidemiological study in nutrition ever conducted, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller that presented that work to the public, The China Study. In addition, the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies provides stellar training in plant-based nutrition through the eCornell platform. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Well, thank you so much. It's a delight. We haven't talked in a while, and so it's a pleasure to be back again. 
Thank you so much. I was looking to see when some of your previous visits to the show were, and they were when the world was really different. Did you ever think that we'd be seeing what we've been seeing for the past eight, nine months? No, absolutely not. This this is for all of us. It's, it's a really challenging time. There's no question about that. But we'll get through it. We'll get through it. I'm sure we will. And hopefully that in the getting through it, we will also learn quite a bit. So I just want to start today, Dr. Campbell, with your take on the whole concept of pandemics in general. Why do we have this one? And why, if we don't wake up, will we have other ones? Well, you know, in an odd sort of way, uh, this uh, pandemic, the word pandemic, as you know, means more than one country. It means societies around the world. And so we're connected in an odd sort of way for a serious problem. But at the same time, there's a little little lesson here. There's a little lesson. We can all get together and do some really good things. The the world can share with each other their own points of view and experiences and so forth and so on. I like that. So maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the time. It's kind of a wake up in one sense. You know, we, we we are connected. We really are connected. Unfortunately, in a rather strange sort of way at the moment, but uh, I, I, we'll, we'll get through it. It's all, about all I can say. I've got some very, I guess, pretty strong ideas about how we can do that. Well, uh, we would love to hear them. Yes, well, it really starts out with my career that started now more than six decades ago. I, I've been in this business for 65 years, actually in the profession itself. And that what I mean by that, I've been in the, in the field of nutrition. Uh, started out at a place at that time in the early days uh, with a point of view that was exactly opposite that I now have, that I acquired because of research over the years. And I was raised on a farm. I was milking cows. I'm a farm boy. That's what, that's what it was. And, and then uh, when I went away to school, eventually to graduate school at Cornell, I did my doctoral dissertation on a project to advance the consumption of more animal protein. I'm sure the vegans would like to hear that. <laughs> so, anyhow, that, that's who I was. And then uh, after that, I, I was at my first university position, which started in 1965 at Virginia Tech. I was also asked to coordinate a national program of feeding malnourished children in the Philippines. That, that was a very exciting venture. Uh, very one that's very satisfying in a way, but also kind of wakes your senses up to some of the difficulties in the world. Uh, I'll never forget that experience. And uh, with that, um, you know, I, I saw a side of the world that needed fixing, if it will, and we need to help, we need to work together. And that really kind of got me into this business. I, I'll just mention one more thing. I, I saw, as many people may know, I saw something that I didn't expect to see. We, we were there in that project to try to make sure these kids got enough protein. And that meant animal-based protein. So, you know, I was suited for that. That, that was my background. <clears throat> but in, in uh, reality, what I saw, I thought I saw, put it that way, no, no definite evidence, but I thought I saw children who were getting the most protein, not many, or at least the families that were getting the most protein, they were the kids likely to have liver cancer. Then I also saw another report that came out. This was an experimental animal study where, in fact, exactly that was being shown. 
higher animal protein consumption, more liver cancer. That's what set me down the path I took. I got plenty of money to, to start a research program that lasted for many, many years. And I first wanted to see if that's true. It took me two or three years to finally convince myself that, yeah, that's true. Consuming animal protein can turn on cancer. Shocking. But then there was also many other spin-offs from that original research that challenged so many things. Got me in trouble. Got me in trouble with the authorities. It got me in trouble with my own thinking. It got me in trouble with the thinking of everybody else. Uh, the animal protein was what it is. It's a dangerous. It's not a good nutrient, even though it's the principal nutrient that has basically driven dietary choice for whatever for a long time. Um, and uh, so that uh, it, it was always a challenge, always a challenge, a challenge with uh, those who didn't like what I was doing. And uh, some who were uh, not a challenge, but some who thought it was kind of interesting. Eventually, it led to a lot, a lot of things. And I I've probably talked here too long, but uh, what I really uh, became acquainted with and loved, in fact, was the idea of working in science. Science to me, to me, that's something very special. It's where we have to look at facts as facts. We can't just, we're not all just opinions as much as we like to, to think that they're facts. Opinions are opinions, but facts are doing something objectively and seeing what the results are and then forming some opinions from those facts. And I, I had ended up with so many uh, challenging ideas Cancer is not what we think it is. For example, uh, administration of drugs is founded on a general idea that I don't support, and I think I can disprove that uh, basis for use of drug therapy. Of course, drugs, some drugs can work. There's a time when we need that sort of thing, but not as a way, means of, not as a way of life. So it all comes down to our understanding nutrition, what it can do. It's amazing. And uh, that's what we need to learn. We need to learn it as professionals, especially. We need to learn it, you know, and, sh and share it with the public. And, and it comes down to this. There's one thing that I, I, I say, it's, uh, I think it's really important. We should eat plants. And we should eat whole plants. Those two ideas, they're kind of different, but they feed into the same narrative. And so I talk about a whole food plant-based diet. So how well can we expect to be? Let's just envision um, a family, a society in which everyone is eating whole plant foods. The children in the womb are getting whole plant-based nutrition from their mother. Everybody starts eating this way early on. What kind of health are we looking at? This is still planet Earth. <laughs> it's not heaven. How how great are we looking for? Well, first off, I would say, and to hear your story just then, uh, eating whole plant-based food is an expression of nature. It really is. That is nature itself. So what we get for that in return is we uh, tend not to get the so-called degenerative diseases that come with aging, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and so forth and so on, you know, obesity, hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. That's a generalization that I'm making, but uh, really in reality, if everybody did it well uh, and with good intent, 
uh, I think we could eliminate. Hear this. I, I'm really con very contrary to this. We could eliminate 80% of our total health care costs. Hmm. We could, uh, we right now, in the existential problem of the day, the environment, we all talk about that, uh, we can bring to a halt the damage and effects that we're doing to the environment. So that's the second thing. And in that, in that uh, journey, uh, we would have to upset a lot of our own thinking or rearrange our thinking. And it will, of course, I, I guess I use that word unintentionally. It will, of course, upset some major, major industries. But we got to think about it. We got to think about it. And uh, we can do it. Well, I have a question on the environmental aspect. It seems to me that once we get past COVID, I think we're going to have to be looking at this huge threat of climate change and, and other environmental degradation. So within the world of, of health and health care, how can anybody in good conscience recommend an animal-based diet with the evidence so clear that it connects to the destruction of the planet? Well, I guess my uh, first uh, answer is a bit cynical. The reason we consume animal-based foods in the modern day, to a great extent, is basically a return on investment, if you will, financial investment. It makes money. It simply makes money. And unfortunately, um, much of our society and the individuals within our society, they place, uh, you know, they, they want to make money. And this is a money-making proposition. That's a driver. So we've got to reshape our thinking on that question, I think to start with, but the evidence, as you just indicated, is really, really persuasive. Um, the number one cause of uh, environmental problems, if you will, climate change, has already been decided some years ago now. Uh, it's gradually catching on. It's our raising of livestock. So, and we do it in, you know, in, in, in countries of the world that can ill afford to that, and we tear down forests, we contaminate the waters, we contaminate the soil, all kinds of things. And they're just in order to eat the wrong food. It's just totally irrational, absolutely irrational. I spoke before the uh, United Nations Agency, uh, that's the call the Food and Agriculture Organization. I spoke to that group in uh, Rome, into the headquarters, uh, to that body of people. And uh, I, I told you, I showed a film, Forks Over Knives, that I, I was involved in, uh, and uh, that, that, that was rebroadcast, was streamed to 100 UN offices around the world. And, and I was being pretty candid, uh, and it was supposed to stay up for a while, but 24 hours later, back in New York, the communications office took it down. That was, uh, in a sense, not in keeping with their overall mission. So I, I've seen, I've been there. I was deeply involved in national policy development, both in this country and elsewhere, and also in international activities as well. And I can tell you the forces that play, that uh, promote the consumption of livestock as food. Many people think that's the main food. We've got to get the protein, if you will. Um, you, you know, the, the forces there are, we're, we can measure in hundreds of billions of dollars. It's that simple. And uh, we've been uh, uh, basically almost enraptured with this whole idea 
of uh, that we have to have that protein and only protein can come from animal foods is that kind of thinking. It's an old story. We don't yeah. need that the protein from plants is all we need. We don't need, I mean, protein is a very important nutrient. We all, you know, in nutrition, we know that. Uh, but plants have all that we need. And in fact, it's a better kind of protein on top of it. So the story is every which way you turn is, uh, is really impressive, I think. So uh, back, back to the COVID uh, situation, Dr. Campbell, if you had been invited last winter to be on that COVID task force, what suggestions would you have offered that no one else did? I wish I were on that, had been on that, that task force, except the administration was a charge of that at the time was not my favorite, to say the least. Uh, but there are a couple of things. Uh, for one, uh, we could have been better prepared. We were better prepared. You know, during the Obama administration, they had spent some effort to put together an office and, and some facilities and a plan, you know, to be able to uh, face the next uh, pandemic, if you will. Unfortunately, that was kind of disbanded. It got lost somehow. So the first thing I would do is to make sure that we had a good testing. We had we put out a platform for the public to consider. We have to test. We have to do that carefully to learn where's the problem, and then deal with it. And by dealing with it, I'm talking about at that point in time, at least, to uh, basically to do the usual things we're doing now, masking, you know, stay a little bit isolated, if you will, right straight off. We did not need to turn almost like burn down the country for this issue from my perspective. Uh, we got out of, we, we went down the wrong track, we weren't prepared. And so that we, there was a really prob serious problem looming. So we had to be pretty more strict, if you will. Um, the other thing I think what you might be referring to is, uh, in my case at least, I would have introduced the concept, eat the right food, eat the right food. And I say that, uh, for a variety of reasons, but most notably, I'm, I'm basing that argument on some data that we collected in China over 30 years ago as part of the big national nationwide program that we conducted at, the, at that time. <clears throat> and so we had some information in that study at that time that all of a sudden came to my mind, hey, this here, this is evidence that we're, we're missing it. Namely, here what, here's what I'm talking about. Uh, we surveyed the causes of about four dozen different kinds of diseases. And the Chinese were marvelous in providing for us uh, sort of a, an atlas of where these diseases occurred and where they didn't. And so we organized, uh, when I say we, I'm talking about my Chinese colleagues and myself, and, and especially my colleagues at the University of Oxford. We organized a national study uh, among 170 villages, eventually, to see why is some of these diseases in some counties, why are they there not in other counties, or much less so, I should say. Uh, and there was one particular disease that is a viral disease. It's primary liver cancer. In fact, that viral disease is worse than the coronavirus. It's more damaging. Uh, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 175,000 deaths per year. It's going up for some time. Uh, that's uh, there. And so we had a chance to uh, survey how much liver cancer in all the different counties. 
We also collected a lot of information, blood samples, urine samples, food samples, analyzed it in umpteen different ways. Uh, we had a lot of information on nutri nutritional characteristics in those different counties, as well as information on the virus that caused the liver cancer. It's called hepatitis B virus. And so liver cancer is common in some places, much more common in some places than other places. And so uh, my colleagues, especially the, the Chinese uh, uh, doctors who went out to collect this information in those 170 villages, what we learned was that those who consume more plant-based foods, they were actually developing antibodies to the virus. And in which case, in which case, there's no relationship between uh, those people and liver cancer. In contrast, here's a really significant point. Those who consume some animal food, and it wasn't much, it was only a small amount, only 10% on average of what we do in the West. Those consuming more animal food, they were the ones that did not form antibodies. They maintain a level of antigens. Now, antigens is the active virus. I, if I can be, use my shorthand here, antigens is, is the active virus present in our bodies. Antibodies is the is the uh, immune, immunized, if you will, virus. <clears throat> so plants basically favor immunity. Animal food favors active virus, and lo and behold. It's the animal food that was so strongly related with liver cancer. So those who consume more uh, animal food, and as I say, a very small amount, that was highly significantly associated with primary liver cancer. For those familiar with statistics, uh, the probability level is 0 0.001. And we measured animal food consumption in a few different ways. And the data were really consistent. The animal food, in turn, was not related to the formation of antibodies. So eating a little animal food and all that goes with that, that gave rise to the, to the liver cancer, which is the product of, uh, of that virus. If they're consuming more plant food, they formed an antibody, and the antigen tended to disappear. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was, a, two, it was a bifurcation almost if I can say it that way. If one tends to eat animal food, they're going to have the virus hanging around and doing its dirty work, namely liver cancer. If they're consuming more plant food, uh, they form antibodies and they don't, they're not related to liver cancer. It's stark. It's oh, It's and, revolutionary. Yes, it is. And also, it turns out, too, that um, this, this a switch, let's say, you probably know this, for those of us elsewhere in the world, let's say, and we're eating the typical Western diet, if we switch over to a plant-based diet, this research has been done, we can see beneficial effects happening within uh, one to two days, certainly within a week. We can see our serum cholesterol levels drop. And of course, the risk of heart disease goes down. We can see for those who are having diabetes and are taking you know, insulin-type medications, uh, when If they switch to a plant-based diet, it's so powerful. Then when that's added to the effects of the drug, those people can actually go into hypoglycemic shock. So strong is the dietary effect. And so and it, it happens within, that's 24 hours. I saw this in the laboratory, the same phenomenon 
how the body responds so fast when when the uh, the diet is changed. And so that wasn't uh, it's not surprising to me because I seen saw that some 30, 40 years ago, you know, in a sense experimentally. And it, it turns out that uh, with all the information I just mentioned to you, if you can sort of keep it keep it in place, people who are suspected of being susceptible to the coronavirus, for example, they can switch a diet and probably get benefit very quickly. For those who are already there, they're going to have much less likelihood of suffering the consequences. It's that straightforward. Now, one question. I, I have to raise this question because if I don't, others will. <laughs> the fact is we were working with a virus called hepatitis B virus, obviously. It was more serious than a coronavirus. Okay? This, so that people will say, oh, that's for hepatitis virus. That's not for coronavirus. I would remind people who with, want to speak, think of that way. We now know there's, I don't know whether something like 80 or 90 official viruses that have been identified and categorized. They all go through the uh, one of a central pool. They go through the portal when they come to our body. They, they are faced with the immune system. And our immune system is really what's doing it. That's what our data showed. So then it becomes a question, which supports a good immune system? Well, it's plant-based diets. The immune system itself, I have to say, is very complex. It's a fantastic system. Right? If you really want to bury yourself in, in some science. But it's a fantastic system. It's very adaptable. It, it's, it's nature at work. It's, uh, it basically is there for uh, countering the pathogens and other things that we, we experience in our lives. And eating plant-based food builds immunity. It builds immunity. And it's very dramatic. And also, anyone who is all of a sudden they're testing positive, even at this late stage, my hypothesis, the sentiment hasn't been proven, of course, in this case, is that they, if they switch to a plant-based diet right then, they would reduce their chances of the consequences of the virus, if there were going to be consequences. So this is the latest chapter in the story on the whole food plant-based diet from my perspective, because this is something we already know what plant-based foods can do for chronic degenerative diseases, like heart disease, diabetes, to a great extent with cancers and so forth. It's the same formula. It's the same formula. So this then gives rise to my hope in many ways. Because if people were to switch, not only would they suddenly experience some really good research, I mean, good health, but at the same time, at the same time, we begin to deal with some of our societal and environmental problems. And That's fantastic. I'm sorry to have to cut you off there. We have to go to break, but I'm so excited. I think during break, I may jog around a little bit. Everybody, stay with us. We'll be back after this. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. 
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hello again. I know that you're probably on the edge of your seat or the edge of the treadmill or wherever you happen to be listening. Uh, Every time Dr. Campbell is a guest, he always says incredible things. And this idea, the power of plant-based nutrition, uh, even in the case of, of a viral illness, is it's it's stunning, it's exciting, and hopefully it is the wave of the future. So for those of you who are new to Main Street Vegan, please check out our website at MainStreetVegan.net. And our blog this week is The Ethical New Normal. Is your diversity and inclusion strategy ready for it? And this is a fascinating post from two graduates of Main Street Vegan Academy, Nivi Jaswal and Selena Shaw, having to do with a project called Javinity that uh, Nivi has spearheaded. And the idea is to get whole plant-based nutrition into underserved communities. And it's starting out with a really exciting petition um, with somebody prominent in the world. So uh, read the post, uh, check it out, and uh, maybe get involved with that. It's such a wonderful way to really change the world for actual people right this minute, which is something that Dr. T. Colin Campbell has been doing for over six decades. So Dr. Campbell, I know we had to go to break very quickly. Did you have a thought you wanted to finish up before we go on? I'll just say, just something quickly, uh, this whole food plant-based diet, lots of variety, by the way, it's applicable to any, any ethnic cuisine. So all the different cuisines that people may prefer they can keep the cuisines that's that's obvious all they need to do is eat plants and they can their own cuisines are characterized by you know, flavors and spices and herbs and so forth anyhow so we can all live with all the various and wonderful different ethnic cuisines and get the same benefits but this idea is so far ranging it deals with a whole host of kind of diseases we get serious diseases that kill most of us before our time and now we're adding to this in my view, viral diseases. Uh, and, and so, I mean, it really is very exciting. I, I cannot, I have to emphasize this. You know, classically, for me to say that, I should say that this has not been tested directly. Okay, this, let's call it a hypothesis. But okay. for me, uh, in this, in this uh, field, if we have evidence as strong as what this is, so significant, so converging from different perspectives. One can't help but believe this will, I mean, there's, it's a no-brainer. It, it's very, very exciting. And you just think maybe the world could use a new book from Dr. T. Colin Campbell. <laughs> well, we got one coming out in just now a week. Okay, what's it called? And tell us all about it. Well, I will tell you the name of it is uh, just a moment here. I, I thought I had a copy here. Just a second. Oh, I don't have it. But anyhow, it's called The Future of Nutrition. And yeah, an insider's look at the past, what went wrong, and how we might get it right. Uh, it's on Amazon. But uh, that, that book, uh, I, after having written the China study, which has incidentally been translated, 
the last count I heard is at least 48 foreign languages. Oh my goodness. And uh, then the book Whole, which is a New York Times bestseller, that's sort of the more philosophical argument that uh, propels me to think what the way I think. And this book is uh, now going back. And, and what, what we did in this book is what I found so fascinating was to go back in time to see why it is that this idea on protein, if you will, especially animal-based protein, why, is that, why are we so wedded to that idea that it's a high-protein product? It's not. I want to go back in history. And I had a chance to do that. was spending a year at the University of Oxford, who are partners in the China study. I got into the libraries, went back to the late 1700s. I think I found the root of why it is why it is that we are so wedded to the idea that we have to have animal protein to be uh, nutritionally best, uh, you know, and sound. What is I, that? That's not true. Uh, and, I, I, and the origin of that whole idea started in 1839, if you will, although the, the concept actually preceded even that. But uh, I'll just say one, one little just thing, catchy phrase here. Uh, the word protein. P-R-O-T-E-I-O-N, that word protein, when it was discovered in 1839 as a chemical in meat that sustained the life of dogs, they realized that they had a life-saving chemical here. They called it a nutrient. It was the first nutrient. They had to give it a name. They named it after the Greek word P-R-O-T-E-I-O-S, proteos, which means of prime importance. And then the first scientist of the day was calling it the stuff of life itself. Hmm. Subsequently, it was then called the stuff of civilization itself. Only civilized people consuming more animal protein were considered to be civilized. That's why they were civilized. And actually, the weird, really strange conversations going on at the time that uh, this idea of protein, you know, from animal sources, if you will, was very, very special. And we had to consume the more the better kind of thing, which is proven now in my mind and uh, from a scientific perspective to be nonsense. So that's what the book is about. How did we get here? What effect did that have on our thinking, on our institutions? And how did that translate into public knowledge? That sounds utterly fascinating. I can hardly wait to get a copy. But I do have a question. Those early researchers who discovered protein, did they realize that it was also in plants or did they only look at animal protein? They only thought of it as being an animal protein. I mean, in animal foods. Yes, good question. Uh, it came about a little bit later, maybe, let's see, about 30 years, 25, 30 years later, it was discovered in plants. But then those who had become so enamored with animal protein as being the only, the animal foods being the only source of this protein, right away they did, got busy and doing some work to show that the protein of plants was lower quality. And they developed eventually a, an equation so we could characterize each protein, whether it's high quality or low quality. And that's part of, that really is close, comes close to home for me because I did my doctorate dissertation and taught my first course, a training course. It was called uh, Livestock Feeding. So uh, where we actually made sure that the livestock get more protein. 
based on that that uh, calculation, if you will, that equation, that assessment. So the, the protein thing just rings. It, if anybody came along during all the years since the last 150 years, if some people came along and questioned the health value of that animal protein, they 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 paid a big price. They paid a big price professionally. So that's what the book is about too, because the same thing happened to me. And uh, even in the modern day. So can you? You were we were talking a little bit about that during the break, and I think this really it it also shows you haven't only contributed incredible findings and information to this work, but you've been through hell for this work. Can you tell us a little bit of what happened to you around 1980? Well, I was on a National Academy panel, as I mentioned before, we were writing the first book on diet, nutrition, cancer. That report became the most popular book ever published by the National Academy of Science at the time. It was, so it, it, was, uh, it became very political, it became very public. Uh, I was involved in public positions at the time, and some felt that I, well, I don't want to get too much of these, I had too much influence in Washington, so they said. And so, um, in spite of the fact that I was active in my own society, my own professional research society, and I had been selected by the, by the executive council to be, to be the next president, they reneged on that, they withdrew it. Uh, then it was a petition put there to have me investigated for betraying the nutrition community because I was departing them. And so that happened. Then there was a circulation of, uh, a, it was sent to all 32 people, including Senator Kennedy, the head of FDA, and a letter sent around by the um, secretary of the American Cancer Society that I had stolen $20,000 from my grant for my own use. It was, th this kind of really nasty stuff was happening, you know, almost like every time I turned around because I had really questioned what we believed nutrition to be. And the popular idea was that nutrition centers on the consumption of protein first and foremost, which comes from animal food, it's that simple. So, you know, unfortunately I was stepping into territory that was uh, not very pleasing uh, to the livestock industry in spite of the fact that I came from the farm I know more, I know more or more about which end of the cow gives the milk. <laughs> other people do. But uh, uh, I felt badly about questioning my own community in a sense. But that leads to another, a different kind of story. Yes. Well, uh, this, this book just seems like what we're all going to read over Christmas vacation, the future of nutrition. And I love the title that you're looking to the future of nutrition by drawing on where we came from. Yes. It, yeah. I love yeah. history. Yeah, I, I do too. Uh, history and science. You said earlier that you love science and I wanted to ask you about that. There seems to be right now in the world a distrust of science in many quarters, like science and scientists are the enemies. What do you do with that? Well, I, I like to go back to my classical definitions, not mine, but the, the classical definition of science that I like. And that's to see an observation, ask any questions we like, 
form a hypothesis we want to study it further, look at it objectively, and as we begin to uncover evidence to see what might be the answer to our hypothesis, always be prepared to be wrong. So therefore, we invite critique. So it's, it's, a, it's a give and take kind of uh, process. Uh, and it's a, it's a fantastic thing. It's almost like playing a great game, if, if you will. That's science. Unfortunately, science, though, today is not considered to be that uh, too often. Uh, the scientific enterprise today, especially in the area of nutrition and food, is highly politicized. It's basically, in large measure, either directly or indirectly controlled by industries that want to continue to produce animal protein, for starters. It's also controlled by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, we, as a society, you, you may know this, uh, Victoria, uh, and it's been talked about to some extent, we, we uh, as taxpayers, subsidize. Our taxes are used to subsidize those industries that produce the wrong kind of food. Right? So we get sick. But for some folks, apparently, that seems to be okay because then we become customers for drugs. So like, okay, feed the folks, feed the folks the wrong food. Don't worry about it. We have drugs to make them well. So it's a system that's very insidious in a sense. It's not that anybody's sitting around and just plotting a scheme. I don't need to say that. It's, that's what I call paradigm. We're all blinded. We don't know what we don't know unless we actually first acknowledge that we don't know what we don't know and then set about trying to investigate those things that might be puzzling by forming hypotheses and then do objective research. All of my research, we considered, we got considerable generous amounts of it, that every last cent of the research, the money I had, and it was generous, uh, came from the public taxpayer. And so, as a result, I've always re felt responsible to go back to the taxpayer to tell them what we did with their money. It was from NIH mostly, American Cancer Society, and so forth. Unfortunately, that too, to a great extent, has been blocked. I can't tell the taxpayer what I did with their money. You know, so uh, it's very sad. Yes, and yet you keep at it. And, and you've written this wonderful book, The Future of Nutrition, coming out next week. So we're getting the information uh, in however we can. So I have having been around this world and, and this um, world of, of well, we didn't call it plant-based nutrition then, but vegetarians, et cetera. Uh, for me, that started in 1969, so I don't go back as far as you, but pretty far back. And at that time, conventional nutrition theory seemed to be lots and lots of meat and, of course, you know, some vegetables on the side. Now, if just looking at it from a, not as a nutrition professional, but from the outside, it looks as if the general idea outside the plant-based world is lots of plants and some animal protein. So it's moved at least that much. What is it going to take to get plant-based protein, pure and simple, the ordinary norm? I have three things in mind, and this is coming from my, my uh, policy experience in Washington. Number one, number one, uh, we've got to insist that medical schools offer a legitimate course in nutrition for all the doctors being trained. 
There's not one medical school in the country that offers anything like this. A few of them have a few lectures on nutrition, but it's the wrong kind. And that can be done politically. In other words, medical schools get a lot of federal support one way or another. That could be suspended until they put a course into their curriculum for the doctors and nurses and other healthcare takers. That's number one. Number two, we also don't have a structure in place to reimburse adequately these professionals who choose to advise patients on this matter. Physicians and so forth are tended, they recover their reimbursement from the insurance companies and so forth by in the, in the checkbox listing the kind of uh, symptoms or whatever they, they worked with their patients. Each kind of disease for situation, for example, commanding it for kind of reimbursement to some extent. In any case, there's 130 medical specialties where you can have checkboxes where people can actually check it off and get their appropriate reimbursement. Of those 130, one for different kinds of cancers and so forth and so on, you know, there's not one called nutrition. So the professionals are not being reimbursed properly. They're not being trained. That can be amended. That could be changed. It's just a stroke of the pen you know, from Congress. And then the third thing is that um, we have 27 National Institutes of Health agencies or institutes, if you will, one for heart, one for cancer. That's they funded most of my research. There's not one called the Institute of Nutrition. And fourthly, I have one more. It's, a, it's an overarching sort of idea. The Supreme Court decision of 2010 called Citizens United enabled corporate interests to spend money wildly, if you will, as my, my interpretation, for elected politicians. So what do we do? We buy and sell politicians, to put it bluntly. That needs to be overturned. That was a 5-4 decision, the Citizens United decision of 2010. As citizens, we have, if we're going to have a democracy, and if, if the public is going to be allowed to, to have some participation in that, that's like step number one. We, you know, change that legislation back to where we're speaking as citizens, not being members of some hugely uh, profitable uh, corporation, if you will. And so the other three things I mentioned in that that last one, uh, that would go a long way. These are all politically, these, these are political possible. But unfortunately, the politicians who have that re responsibility are having a time, hard time to do that because they are elected according to how much money they could bring in for their campaigns. So it, that's what it is. It's the bottom line. Every time I, I say that in the many lectures, I sometimes, every time I have a chance to say that sort of thing, I usually get a, a quite an ovation. Uh, but, but I know that there's a lot of people in the public familiar with this kind of thing, and they agree. That's, so those are the things I would choose first. And they're all doable. They can be done in the next four years of our current the new administration. Yes. Yes. And I guess the rest of us, the laity out here, <laughs> we can just eat as well as we can, be as healthy as we can be, and inspire all of those around us. So I want to ask you, you, you talked about this wonderful way of eating as as being the best defense against degenerative diseases, the, the diseases of aging. So in people that you have known throughout your tenure and all of this, 
who have followed these instructions, do you see in actual humans, plant-based people who are getting into their 70s, 80s, and beyond doing better than other people? Yes, the best evidence I can cite, I think, in a broad scale, is the Seventh-day Adventist group who have been tracking people since around, I think, the 1970s or so. Uh, and they came up with, at one point in time, after some years, they were able to show that uh, women lived on average 12 years longer who eat this way. Men, wow. Men, uh, I think it's seven or, I forgot, seven or nine years longer. So there's an extension of life. But even more than that, that's the only. That's not the only metric. The, the, what really is interesting is that um, we don't get the diseases that are, for the most part, uh, caused by eating the wrong food. So we don't have the morbidity problem. You know, it would be nice if we, we, we all have our time on Earth. We'd like to be able to spend the last years a, a little bit comfortable. And, uh, you know, without having to worry about getting some one of those diseases... And then, and then losing our all of our savings for our life, maybe losing our homes and every, our families losing losing. There's a big cost here, and so uh, I think uh, yeah, that's that's well. I hope that answers the question. But yeah, it's it's great. It's yeah, the the Adventist studies are are stunning. Those people have been yeah, doing this for so long. There's, there's a group in England, too, is the uh, Vegan Society. Uh, yes. Timothy Key, a friend of mine, is one of the prominent people who have been involved in that. Uh, Ilio Riboli, uh, who heads up the EPIC study, the European uh, Prevention, uh, to get the rest of that acronym. But uh, those European studies have also gotten some really interesting information on this point. And, of course, our China study. Our China study, the data we have there, I, I think it's some of the most powerful because what we're able to show is that even small, cons a small amount of animal food consumption starts to raise our serum cholesterol levels, which in turn are indicative of the emergence of Western diseases. And it's surprising that we are able to get a, such a highly significant, statistically speaking, such a significant effect just increasing the animal protein consumption from near zero up to just a small amount. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I'm going to be publishing that soon. And I, I sort of published that a little bit prior to this, but I want to make some noise with that idea. <laughs> I love it that you want to make noise still, and you've been making noise forever. Now, most people retire <laughs> and you never will. And how much of that is just who you are, personality-wise, and how much of it is the necessity of getting this information out there? Well, it's a good question. It's all intermingled. My answer is intermingled in a sense, but there's uh, two or well, three people. My parents, for one thing, they were farm. My dad was a farmer. His, my mother, uh, she had a garden. My dad, uh, he only had, he was an immigrant from Northern Ireland. He only had two years of formal education. And nobody in our family, either on my mother's side, ever gone to college. And uh, so uh, he wanted me to get an education. And I had to drive just over 100 miles a day to go to high school and junior high for five years. It was west of Washington, D.C. I was having to drive into 
a school in Georgetown, a public school. It was free, but my dad couldn't afford it otherwise. So, number one, he really put his, I mean, he really made clear what he wanted. He wanted me to get an education. But there was something else he did, too, that I never can forget this. He said, when you get big, <laughs> you say it like that, uh, remember, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And he just, that's what, that was his uh, major recommendation to me. Uh, he also had, this was in the South, the segregated South at the time, he also had an immense reputation with the black community. Uh, and that combination of telling the truth, uh, relating to the, you know, if the underserved, if you will, uh, at the time, th those are, and then after that, when I started to go to college and one thing or another, I, it was a number of senior people to me, professors and so forth, I always sort of like, with uninvited, were kind of stepping out of the woodwork and making it possible for me to either get a scholarship or, or other opportunities. And so that, that was uh, obviously very important. Uh, it kind of set the pattern what I chose to do. I, I'm not going to go against that advice. I can assure you. Oh, that's, that and, is and so, so heartwarming. Yes, it was, it was a very sustaining idea, I have to tell you. It, it is indeed. And what he passed on to you, you're passing on well, to, to your sons. I mean, your, your wonderful sons, uh, Dr. Thomas Campbell and, and Nelson Campbell of Plant Peer Communities, they're just what? in this work and doing it. One, one more I have to do has to say one more. Twenty person. seconds. Yes, my wife of fifty-eight years. Oh, Karen. She's, she's the one. We have five grown children, eleven grandchildren. She, we all eat this way, a hundred percent of us, because she took this information I was talking about and turned it into food. Oh, turned it into food. What a beautiful ending. Thank you so, so much, Dr. T. Colin Campbell. To all the listeners, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on The Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.